Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we sit down and explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this special episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett is joined by CBS radio personality Rich Herrera as they talk all things spring training. Baseball stuff! Baseball stuff! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, we've got a special edition spring training on the Boone Podcast today, along with national talk show host and executive producer of the Boone Podcast. That is one Rich Herrera. Rich, uh, let's do it. Let's get to it. Because you know what, Booney? I've got questions for you when it comes to spring training. So can I hijack the podcast for the listeners as they're starting to think of, of faraway places like Hohokam Park and Kissimmee and those in those those towns down in Florida that you start to hear about Port Charlotte and Fort Myers. And if you're sitting in the middle of Boston right now, you know, the Red Sox are heading down there. So, you know, that summer's on its way and you'll be at Fenway Park soon. Without a doubt. And as a player, you know, as soon as that as soon as that Super Bowl ends, you know, it's getting it's that time of year. Uh, matter of fact, we got we got pops, uh, Bob Boone. He's in camp with the with the Angels. I just talked yeah. to him today, his first day at camp. Uh, pretty darn cool. He's he's getting back and I want pictures of him. He's got his uni on again. Uh, that famous Boone Uni uh, from from his time with the California Angels. It was at the time. So yeah, it's all it's that time of year. It's spring training, and uh, let's get to it. All right. So these are things I want to know because I've been to spring training both sides of the country. So I spent a lot of time out in uh, in Arizona uh, with my time around the Giants and the Oakland A's and the Padres, and I spent a lot of time in Florida with my time around the Rays. You, you've been to both, haven't you? I've been to, I've spent, you know, I had 14 years and, and it was pretty equal. I think I spent seven years on each coast. Uh, okay. Pros and cons for, for people that are sitting there. I was just talking to a buddy of mine, big Reds fan. So we're talking about either a going to Cincinnati this summer to see the Reds, or we're talking about going to little Ohio, uh, where the Reds and the Cleveland Indians or Cleveland Guardians, excuse me, I owe you a dollar for that. Uh, where they both train. So give me the pros and cons of being in Florida versus being in Arizona. Let's start with Florida. Give me the pros of spring training in Florida. There are none. Uh, none. Sadly going to announce yet Florida. It's a different animal. And, and like I said, I've spent uh, half my time there with the Cincinnati Reds. I I spent one spring training there uh, with the Atlanta Braves when we were at Disney. That was actually, that was, that was actually kind of nice. With the Reds, you were in Sarasota? I was in Plant City. Oh, Plant, old City. Plant City. Oh, which, that's old school. Yeah, they were there forever. And then we moved to Sarasota right before I moved on to the Braves and then eventually Padres back to the Seattle Mariners. The time in Florida, it's just, it's a different animal, Rich. Uh, Arizona seems, and I don't know if it's just, it seems this way or it is. It seems like all the games are closer, you know, uh, the the weather's a little bit nicer in Florida. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of differences about Florida and Arizona. For instance, when you're in Florida, you come to the ballpark. Let's say you have a road game. You come to the ballpark, you get dressed, you get on the bus. And I, I, I mean, I'm sorry, not dressed in your uniform, dressed in your street clothes. You get on the bus, 
you go to the visiting ballpark, you play the game, you shower after the game and get back on the bus and drive home. Arizona, I'm, I'm going through my morning workout if I've got a road game and then I'm getting in full uni, getting on the bus, going to the game and playing the game. There's no showering, uh, nothing like that. So that's that's quite a difference right there for the Florida versus versus Arizona spring. Would you drive yourself in in Arizona? It rarely do you drive. Rarely do the players drive. And I don't know if that has to do with insurance and, and liability uh, for, for the parent company or for the parent ball club. But usually what happens is uh, you take the bus there. If you're a veteran player, if you're going to play the first couple innings, say the beginning of spring and you're going to get out of the game, they'll have a couple vans there uh, right. to get those guys out of there and say that, you know, they get your second at bat. and You got a group of two or three veteran guys. You'll get back in the vans and go back to, to wherever your home complex is. Well, okay, so I've been to both. Um, Phoenix, everything's a lot closer. It's it's within an hour drive in rush hour to get back and forth. And, and there's so many new ballparks uh, that you have, but it, it, it's pretty close. Everything's right there. It seems like spring break of baseball because you have all the fans of all the teams mixing in old Scottsdale and throughout and, you know, out in Peoria where the Padres and the Mariners are, uh, the Cubs fans will be out there. So it seems like it's, it's a big festival. Florida is a little bit more spread out. So, you know, you've got the Red Sox and the twins down in Fort Myers, then in Tampa, you've got the Yankees, you've got the Phillies at Clearwater. When you were a kid, you spent a lot of time there. Uh, the Rays are going to be a Tropicana field because there was storm damage at their home ballpark. Um, the, the Braves are down in the middle between Tampa and Fort Myers. You have Sarasota. You've got Bradenton. And then you've got a whole other world on the other side where the Cardinals are. Yeah, it's almost like when Tucson uh, had their facilities there for spring training in Phoenix. That was the only tough part about the Arizona spring training is, wow, you've got to go make that trip to Tucson. And you didn't want to be on that trip because sometimes it was a two day trip. So you'd stay the night. So you try to get out of that. But but they'd, they'd have a couple during the spring. So if you're a veteran player, you at least had to go on one. Um, I, there I think- is a rule. There is a rule there that is you have to have so many starters, so many frontline players, so you don't show up with a bunch of guys wearing 90 on their back uh, if you're the Red Sox. And I sold out uh, Steinbrenner Field versus the Yankees. Well, I, I but I think that's that's uh, that starting player, that well-known player, uh, it's a very vague term. <laughs> so you'll see guys, especially at the end of spring training, getting away with what they're calling an everyday guy or a star player. Uh, that being said, yeah, if you had two trips to Tucson, uh, you're going to have a, a veteran a veteran group. Half the team's going to be the veteran guys that go one time, and then uh, the veterans that didn't make the first trip usually will go on the second trip. The skippers are usually good, good about that. And I also understand from a fan's perspective, you know, they, they pay a lot of money. They they go to their uh, respective cities or whatever their team is is playing. And, and they might only get to see a couple games, two or three games. They want to see the guys that the big names, the guys that they're going to be seeing once once it kicks off and we have opening day. So I, I completely feel for those fans. And I know they want to see the big boys. So they do a pretty good job at accommodating that. Um, I think you hit it on the head when you talk about Arizona versus Florida. Florida is. It seems like it's just vast. It seems like you're in a a much bigger space where spring training's not in the air. You know, you go out to your local restaurant uh, in in Florida, and it doesn't seem like spring training's going on. You go to you go to 
Phoenix and Scottsdale uh, during spring training time. Everywhere you go, you know spring training's in the air. Do you have favorite hangouts in each? I really don't. You know, my last spring training uh, in Arizona was 2005. And that's when the city of Peoria was just underway of uh, booming the way it is now. I went out there recently for for a Padres fantasy camp, stayed in Peoria. It's a different world it's than, crazy, it was, right? than it was when I was there. Yeah, I would stay in Scottsdale and commute every day to uh, to Peoria. Now, yeah, you don't have to do that. The current Mariners, the current San Diego Padres, they stay local, close to, to the stadium. And uh, it's really nice. They've done a great job down there. But uh, no, I really didn't have a hangout, you know, especially as I got a little bit older, had family. The family was with me pretty much the entire spring training. So it was pretty much get up in the morning. Dad's got to go to work, whether I was playing that day or not. Some days I'd get home, you know, at two in the afternoon. Some days I went to the game. It was an away game. I had to do my my workout after uh, after the game and I'd get home at four or five o'clock at night. So uh, it all depends on the day. But as far as a hangout, no, it was get home, get these kids fed and and uh, get a decent night's sleep because <laughs> I've got to be up at 630 for the next day. See, I so if you go to Clearwater, there's a place called Lenny's. It's a breakfast place. Uh, be prepared to stand there for 45 minutes. But the the cinnamon rolls are worth it uh, right next to um, uh, the stadium right there in Clearwater where you where you grew up uh, going to spring training with your dad. Um, but there's there's all kinds of great places. And that's what I love about it, Brett, is the fans all get a chance to interact with each other in a real low key way. Yeah, it's really cool. And and by the way, the players today, especially today, uh, with the accommodations they have at these facilities, with the chefs, with the with the food, the way it is in 2023, nobody gets up and wants to go to breakfast anywhere else except for the stadium. They've got everything under the sun you could imagine, uh, however you want to eat from from name your own omelet to pancakes to anything. I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty good uh, amount of choices you have in the morning. So the ball players, especially current day ball players, they're eating the majority of their meals at the ballpark because it is so good. I'm telling you, I'm not getting paid, folks. Lenny's in Clearwater, and if you're going to go see the Orioles uh, down in Sarasota, right across from the box office, Brett, um, is a little breakfast place that I would always go to, which was amazing in Bradenton. I think it's called Poppy's. It's just to the, if you're facing the ballpark, just to the right there was a little diner right there that you can get something to eat if you got there early. It's it's amazing. But before I, I get to back up for just a second, because there's a bunch of stuff I've always wondered about. So you said it. Super Bowl hits. I start getting cabin fever, knowing it's time to get to spring training. Lead me up until lead me up until uh, up until the Super Bowl, which, by the way, I think we need to officially uh, congratulate little man and Aaron uh, on uh, making it to the Super Bowl, although their team didn't win. Yeah, and that's going to ring hollow with those guys. The, the, the hardcore Eagle fans, they're not very happy. They don't want to hear a, a way to go, guys. Great year. You know, it was for them this year, it was win the Super Bowl or bust. Uh, it, it's kind of that way in Philly. You know, right. they're pretty, they're pretty, they're pretty loyal fans, but I'll tell you, it's it's not okay to just get to the world. It's not like Southern California where you get to the playoffs and you did a good job or Seattle where you get to the playoffs. It's it's kind of like a Yankee mentality with those Eagles. Get Not only get to the Super Bowl, but win the Super Bowl. But well, yeah, I, I had this conversation with somebody the other day on the radio that he says, oh, you know, I'm just going to be happy to make the playoffs. So great. Then you'll never win a World Series. Exactly. Exactly. So, OK, uh, so let me back up for a second. 
Super Bowl happens. That's when I get spring fever and I start getting cabin fever, knowing that I'm going to be going to Arizona or Florida for spring training soon. What is your what is your offseason like? Because we always hear about, oh, you know, Brett Boone, when he put on five pounds of muscle or Brett Boone, you know, lost all this weight. Tell me what happens from the World Series until we get to the Super Bowl. What are you doing? Well, I'll tell you, it really changes as you go through your career, uh, young player, old player. Uh, there is a big difference. You know, my first couple spring trainings, I was so excited. I mean, kid in a candy shop. I can't wait to get there. This this is big league spring training. Uh, it's different than anything I'd, I'd ever been a part of before. So I wanted to get there and, and put my stamp on it, show that I was a big leaguer. And that's as a young player. I couldn't wait to get to spring training. You know, they tell you uh, we report on the 19th. I mean, I'd be there on the 16th. And back then they'd be like, well, you're really not supposed to work out before the 19th. But I was so excited to get there. Uh, as time goes on and you become a veteran player, uh, you kind of learn the system a little bit. You know, you got a little bit of that that rookie uh, excitement has gone away. And now you you find a way to prepare for a big league season. So as a rookie, uh, I didn't do much back then. You know, 1991, uh, I wasn't even into to working out, going to the gym, baseball back then. It was kind of 50-50, you know, weights, weights and training were just coming into the game. But I was from that old school uh, belief that, I'm a baseball player. I don't lift weights. I, I do baseball activities. So I do the typical in the offseason, take my ground balls, uh, go hit in the cages. As time went on and I and I started Wait, to let me stop you. Let me stop you. Yeah. Who are you who are you hitting in the cages with? Who's hitting you fungos so you can work on ground balls? Well, it depends. Depends where you are in the country. You know, that first year I was living with with my dad. My first year I got called up to the big leagues that that offseason. I stayed with mom and dad. I saved on rent. Uh, I was getting married that year. And, uh, you know, I worked out locally with whatever players you can kind of round up. You get together, whoever's in the area, you go to a local high school and, and you take ground balls and you throw BP to one another. Uh, then I moved down to Florida and I had so a couple. Do you remember who you worked out with that first year? I do. I do not. I do not. A couple minor league guys that were in the area in Orange County, California. Uh, that was my first recollection of getting ready for spring training. As time moved on, I moved to the Florida area and then I had teammates with the Cincinnati Reds. I had uh, Barry Larkin and a Hal Morris and a Joe Oliver. Once again, we'd get together. It wasn't really this big, uh, sophisticated event. I mean, we'd meet at the local high school and Dr. Phillips and we'd throw BP to one another. Uh, as I moved on and I and I started spending more time in Seattle year round, uh, then I could go use Safeco Field, now T-Mobile Park. Uh, and that was really convenient because now all the local guys in the area, that's where we'd get ready. But it really it really depended, Rich, on the year. I was coming off of if I had a great year, uh, I was happy with my swing, my stance. I'd kind of take it easy for a week right away. I'm starting to hit the weight room, going to get on my off season diet, which I would keep up for four months and really wouldn't start doing baseball activities till after the first of January, January one hit. That was kind of a, an internal clock. They said, it's time for me to start going to the cage, start hitting, start throwing, uh, start doing my running program, getting ready for spring training. Now, if it was a year where, wow, I wasn't happy with last year coming off a rough, I, I got to make a few swing changes. I could start as, as early as the middle of October. The one that comes to mind uh, was after the 97 season. 
uh, I had had a tough year in Cincinnati and I needed to change my swing, going from a closed stance to an open stance, something uh, that sounds pretty simple on the surface, but you can't do it in the middle of a season. This takes months and months of repetition, repetition. So that was a long off season for me. Is that to develop the muscle memory? It is. It's almost like if I can compare it to anything, it's almost like a golfer going through a swing change. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen on, you know, after Thursday's round for Friday's round, you got to compete and find a way just to get through that tournament. This is something that's a long, uh, it's a long process. And I remember the first time I had to do that was after the 97 season. And I was with my dad all off season and he threw to me and we went from a closed stance to an open stance and it was repetition, repetition, repetition. So I started in the middle of October with baseball activities. Other than that, so normally, wait a minute, hold on. Is that self-diagnosis or was Bob standing there telling you, all right, wait a minute, you're opening up too much. You're doing this. Watch your hands. Well, I think what had happened to me is I got to the big leagues. I had uh, I struggled right away. I got my humble pie. I came back in 1994. Uh, I hit 320 and 95. I had a nice year and it kind of started to get away from me a little bit. I remember about the second half of 96 through the 97 season, I really had a rough time. And my dad was always close. Uh, He was one of those guys, not just because he was my father, but for some reason, we had a, a really good rapport when it came to my swing. So I was talking to him during the, the last couple months of the regular season. And I said, this off season, dad, we've got to do a big revamp. I want to open my stance. Uh, I want to get two eyes on the pitcher. And he says, you know what that's going to entail. It's going to be a lot of work. You know, normally, like I mentioned earlier, I'd start the beginning of January. Now all of a sudden I've got to start baseball activity pretty much as soon as I get home from the season, if this is going to work, uh, I worked that all that off season and, uh, the open stance that that you kind of saw the second half of my career that all came to fruition in the in the ninety seven off season, um, and that's how it came about. But normally, all right, fast forward. Normally, October. No, no, uh, no, wait a minute, I'm not done with that. Do okay. you tell the club, hey, I'm going to change my stance? No, not at all. You so know, you just ba- basically, they're looking they're looking at me hitting two thirty three or whatever I hit that year, and say, you better change something, kid. Okay, so it's expected. <laughs> It's expected. You know, we're self-evaluators. Uh, we always have to to make the little tweaks. Uh, that's all on you as the player. You're a big league player. Uh, the kid gloves are off. It, it's no longer that. It's you're in the big leagues. We expect you to act and behave. And 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 what that basically says is we expect results. You're right. you're here. You're you're not here for being pretty or or this or that. We don't care how good your swing looks. We want results. And when when you start not getting the results, there's some things you got to do. And that '97 season was a big off season for me. '98, I came back had a really nice year and was happy with the change. Well, something we never talk about, nobody ever talks about. We just kind of gets mentioned. I'll mention it on broadcast. Is you have that end of the season um, sit down with your manager. You're almost your exit interview. Do you what do you get out of that before you get ready to go to spring training and say, Brett, we love this. We want to see this. Well, Rich, that's kind of a misnomer. Uh, You know, as a veteran player, I would never sit down and have a talk with a manager now. Okay. as a rookie, when you're on the bubble, are you going to be on the team? Are you the starting starting second baseman? Are you not? There might be things that he'll come in and, and talk to you almost like you're you're in triple A still developing. So early on, when I first got my first couple call ups to the big leagues, yeah, there would be discussions like that. What we wanted you to work on 
as I transformed into and became an everyday player and, and established myself in the big leagues, not much of that goes on at all. It, it's kind of a, a look a an awareness that you know what you need to work on this offseason. Uh, now, I think in 2023, it's gotten a little more technical. You know, I see with the data and, and they can give you so much feedback now. So they have a printout for these players these days. But as far as the big league side, uh, they treat you like a pro. They treat you like a big leaguer. So they expect you to know what you need to work on each and every offseason, depending on how that that prior year uh, played out. See, I always think of it that we see three different types of players show up in spring training. The kid trying to make the club, the established veteran, and then the guy who's trying to hang on for one more year. Mm -hmm. And each of them has a different approach when they come in to spring training. Talk about the difference between the three phases of your career. All right. Well, the first and the latter are kind of, I can combine those. You know, that first year I got the call, it was, uh, I get a big league invite. I wasn't on the roster but it was my first spring training with the big leaguers. And uh, it was 1992 and uh, Harold Reynolds was the second baseman in Seattle. And I came in just that young kid couldn't be more excited. I was a big league camp with the big league guys, you know, and basically I got to hit sometimes, you know, Harold would start the game. I'd come in for him usually in the sixth or the seventh inning. And I was lucky, you know, if we were the home team and we got the bottom of the ninth, maybe I'd get an at bat. Cause usually Harold would take his last at bat in the seventh inning. And then I'd go in for defense for him. So I had to flip that lineup around. So I'd always be pulling for everybody to get some hits so I can get an at bat. <laughs> I had a great spring. I, I think I got limited at bats. I think I went 10 for 18. I, I had no chance going into that spring training from from the organizational standpoint it was just getting me experience i had no chance of making the team but it was funny late in the spring this is when omar Vizquel was the shortstop and he was having a rough spring they didn't know how much he was going to hit you know fast forward through omar's career he he became a really good hitter and i think 280 career but at the time he was a young player as well and a wizard with the glove, but they were, he was really a light hitting shortstop. I was tearing it up so much that they put me a couple games at shortstop uh, during that spring. And I remember thinking, well, it's really cool that I'm getting to play short because I'm going to get some at bats today. On the other hand, who am I kidding? Uh, I can't play shortstop every day in the big leagues. You know, I, I can fool you for a couple of days, but I think you put me out there long enough. I'll be exposed and you'll see why I'm a second baseman. So that's that's part of being a young player coming to camp. Uh, you just want to make an impression. You just want to make those guys go, hey, this guy's good. You know, a couple now, of that this reminds me. This reminds me of one of the first podcasts that, that I remember when you talked about, you know, when you first got drafted, you show up the first day. Maybe it was in Strzok's. And okay, go take your position. You run out to shortstop. They go, no, no, Boone, you're a second baseman. Without a doubt. And I had a smile on my face and it was a smile of, of kind of relief. Like I, I'm really not a shortstop. I knew I wasn't. I played short my junior year in college and it was just kind of because I was the best of a bad lot as far as the defensive side of the ball, me playing shortstop. So I knew I, and, and I hoped when I got drafted, you know, as you know, uh, the best players usually are the shortstop on the team starting from little league on. Uh, and, and you're always getting drafted as a shortstop, but I was always thinking, man, I'm, I'm really a second baseman. I feel comfortable there. And yes, you're right. I, I had that, uh, I had that interaction. I went to take my position and, and the, the camp coordinator said, Boone, you go to second, 
like I said, I gave him a, a wry smile, went to second base and, and really never played another position in my big league career. So that that was good for me. Uh, you talk about the veteran guy on his last leg, maybe he even has to make a team after having a long career and, and established career. But it's like, OK, let's see what you got again. Almost that's like throwing you in that rookie basket again. Like you're a rookie all over again. You've got to prove to these guys that you've still got what it takes to compete with these young players. You know, baseball is a young man's sport. That's why you don't see many guys playing into their late thirties. You know, you get to about 33, 34, they start looking at you, depending on the position you play and the wear and tear in your body, they start looking at you like you're an old guy. So uh, yeah, you, 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 as that veteran guy, especially not under contract, maybe you sign a one year deal, uh, that's not guaranteed. You've got to open some eyes and it's like, you're a rookie again. A lot of guys don't do very well with it because it's, you know, there might be 15 years in between their rookie year and the end of their career where they're not used to having to show up and produce. You, you show up, get your body ready, get ready for opening day. And that's where I moved to that middle, that middle component you were talking about that established veteran player in the middle of his career in his heyday, let's call it. Uh, that's a time where you get to, Get to spring training and it's on your program. And I got to that point, uh, you know, the middle 10 years of my career where it was just basically I get here and now, OK, I've had that experience of being that rookie and, and just trying to do well. Now I, I have a purpose when I get to spring training. My purpose is to get that timing down. Yeah, of course. I'd be lying if I said I don't want to get a hit every bat. I want to get a hit every bat. I don't care if we're playing wiffle ball in the backyard. I want to get a hit. But I realized at that point in my life, it wasn't important for the hits. It was important for the at-bats and when that timing was there. And ultimately, uh, ultimately, you would like to peak at the right time. And that's right before opening day at the end of March. That, that's when you, you really want to have it. Some spring trainings, I came in and within a week or 10 days, I was ready to go. And now it makes for a long spring because you want that feeling going into the regular season when those stats start counting and they put them on the back of your bubblegum card. That's what we used to say all the time. You know, the guys that had a great spring. Well, that ain't on the back of your bubblegum card. So we know when the bell rings, you know, that's the regular season. That's when you want to be ready. I've had experiences where, like I said, seven to 10 days, I'm ready to go. I've also had spring trainings where I'm getting to the end of the March and I still don't have that timing down. And you start to kind of question, like, am I ever going to get it? Am I going to get it here? I don't want to go into opening day feeling like I feel right now. But usually it works out in the long run. Well, that's one of my favorite parts about being a sports talk show host is early in spring training. Some kid you've never heard of is just a phenom and he's tearing it up. And all of a sudden, the fans are calling up, hey, this young Brett Boone kid, I think he should stick. And I know there's a three-time Gold Glove All-Star in front of him, but I like this kid, and I think we should trade the other one. And then all of a sudden, you see him, and he's taking off. He's hitting 700 in the first five days of spring training, and everybody's talking about a uh, position controversy. And then before you know it, by the time it's over, uh, he's down in minor league camp because he finished hitting a buck twenty-five. That's usually how it works. I mean, you go into spring training, uh, you, you're in two cat, you're in three, basically three categories. The, the regular guys that we know, it doesn't matter what they do. Uh, they're the opening day shortstop. That's just the way it is. Uh, there's that group of guys that, Hey, they've got a chance, but they've really got to open some eyes, maybe a veteran player, maybe a guy that's had some success in the big leagues. And then there's that rookie. 
who, who usually is in that, hey, we're here to get him experience. We're here to to just let him hang in big league camp and, and see what it's all about. And it's funny because the players usually know, the veteran players know who has a chance to make the team and who doesn't. But it's it seems like each and every year, uh, there's that guy that comes out of nowhere and he's lighting the world on fire. He's hitting home runs and, and hitting 500 in spring training. And people start to ask, is he going to make the team? It's almost like the manager in that position wants him not to get hits, to put that pressure on him politically to make the team. It's there's always a, there's always a, uh, a story like that. It seems like each and every spring training I went to and uh, the bottom line is spring training statistic wise. And I still say this to this day, the most overrated stat in sports, how you hit in spring training, completely different animal than the big leagues, big leagues. You have stadiums, you have three deck stadiums. The wind is cut pretty much unless you're at a Wrigley field or Boston on a, on a blustery day. Wind isn't a factor at the big league level. Yeah. Sometimes early in April, uh, as you're getting closer to October, there might be some windy days, but for the most part, you're in these big league stadiums. They're cathedrals. They block all the wind. Nowadays, you have a lot of uh, roofs that come on and off. So really, they control the conditions. Different in spring training, as you know, with all the springs you've been to, Rich, Florida especially. That wind could be blowing 20 miles an hour. And depending on where you're playing, they could be blowing straight out. So pop-ups are home runs. Vice versa, you could be playing at a ballpark where it's 20 miles an hour right in your face. So it's really not a realistic test. And like I said, that's why I said that the numbers that are put up in spring training, they're the most overrated stat in all of sports. Spring training invites. We'll see minor leaguers like you had one. How much does that help you? eventually in your career, just getting used to being around the big league club and being in the big league clubhouse, even though there's no way in God's green earth, you're going to make the team. Without a doubt. It's, it's definitely a stepping stone. It's something that you take. So next year, when you do have a chance to make the team, it's not something foreign to you. You know, some of the big league players, cause you've hung out with them, you know, and, and you've been around them. You've been on the same team. You've played games with them. You're turning double plays with your middle infield partner. So without a doubt, uh, very, very important to get that experience definitely gives you a leg up and, and makes you a little bit comfortable for that time where you, this time you're really going to have a chance to make the team put you at ease. You've been there, done that before. So definitely it's something that I think is pretty important. All right. So take us in the clubhouse then when you're that young kid, Brett Boone showing up hair on fire. Um, what are the rules? What are you doing? What are you not doing? Uh, how much are you talking? How much are you listening? What's your role? Well, well it's a little different nowadays. You know, I see uh, 2023 and we've had so many guests on the podcast that we talk about yesteryear. We talk about the current game. Uh, I see a lot of things in the current game that make me go, hmm, maybe that's a better way to go about your business. I came from a time, 1990, 1991, where you're a rookie, you show up, you shut up, you speak when spoken to you earn your way. You don't sit in the back of the bus when you're going on a road trip. You sit in the front of the bus with the coaches. And that's just the way the rules are. Well, who was I not to be that guy that was going to buck the system? And I did. And I did it just to test uh, the veteran players. The guys that were uh, really important to me early on in my career were, were Jay Buhner, uh, Chris Bazio. Uh, I had a, a Kevin Mitchell at the time that really kind of took me under his wing these guys would give me as hard a time as you possibly could give me, but always took care of me. So it was kind of that tough love. 
2023, the game's a little bit different. You know, it, it kind of, I, I see a lot of the rookies and, and when this new kind of culture hit a few years back, I thought, look at these rookies. They're acting like they've been in the game for 10 years. Right. They're, they already have their own shoe. Well, I'll tell you, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about it. it it's almost like we were scared to death as rookies. We weren't allowed to do anything. Like I said, speak when spoken to and just prove yourself. Uh, I think there's benefits in that because I think it, it, when you earn something, it means a little bit more and, and you can use that as experience down the line. Today's player is kind of the mentality of make them comfortable from the get go. So treat those rookies like they're veterans. I don't know. For winning and losing ball games, that might be a good way to go. If you've got a young star player like a Soto, uh, like a Tatis, to make them feel comfortable and, and treat them like a veteran player when they're rookie, does that make them play better? I don't know. I think there's an argument both ways. I'm glad I came up the way I did, uh, where you kind of, and not saying these guys don't have to earn it. Of course, you always have to earn uh, a, a right to 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 have a big league uniform on to play in the big leagues. You always have to earn it. But I kind of like the way I went through it, where it was kind of like, you're going to prove yourself. And until you do, uh, it's going to be tough on you. It, it made it that first time I got to take a shower, come out of the game early. And I was showering with Griffey. I thought I've arrived, you know, <laughs> it, it, it was the coolest shower I've ever had because Lou actually took me out of the game in the seventh inning in a blowout. When usually as a rookie, if we go 20 innings, you're playing 20 innings. Uh, and he took me out of the game that that day early in Minnesota. And I remember taking that shower, just looking around inside going, this is so cool. He took me out of the game. You know, that's all a part of the process and, and part of being a young player and maturing into a veteran everyday big leaguer. We've also talked about we had Dusty Baker on the program. And Dusty talked about how Henry Aaron put his arm around him and really taught him the ropes. So talk to me about being a veteran when you see a young Brett Boone or a young player coming in, how you show them the ropes, how you put your arm around them, how you show them how to be a big leader. You know, I was just there as a sounding board for most of these players. I came up where I got, you know, I, I don't know if I use the term hazed, but you know, they'd make me wear a dress when we'd travel. Uh, they cut oh, the, the rookie hazing. Yeah. They'd cut the buttons off my collared shirt. Uh, they'd cut the sleeves off my suit. Uh, and then we get to the next city and the veteran guys would take me out, buy me a new suit. So I always got a new suit out of it. Um, but I didn't really handle it that way, Rich. By the time I was a veteran, uh, everything I'd gone through my experiences, the, the guy pitching for that other team tonight, Greg Maddox is pitching for the other team tonight. He's going to humble this young player. Brett Boone doesn't have to humble him. Brett Boone's there as a teammate. Hey, you got a question. Uh, I'll tell you about my experiences when I was a young player. This is what I did. This may help you out. I was always there as long as you were respectful of the players in that room, the players that have been doing this for a while. Uh, I could care less if you were cocky, if you were if you were a, a, a gentleman. It didn't matter to me. It was respect the uniform respect the other players in the room. As long as you did that, I loved all sorts of personalities. I'd love to see that guy that came in and, and he was cocky because you know what? That guy, like I said, Greg Maddox, he's going to humble this guy for me. I don't have to humble him. I don't have to cut his suit in half. I don't have to make him wear a dress. He's going to come back after an 0 for 4 against one of the greatest pitchers of all time and go, wow. You know, I got a lot of work to do or I've got to make an adjustment. That was the neat part for me to see a young player coming up 
with a true confidence, with a true and, and people will always call it cocky or arrogance. No, it's just a real confidence in oneself. When I saw that as a young player, I loved it because I thought to myself, he's going to have a lot of humble pie. He's going to get knocked down. But this is the type of player that when he gets knocked down, gets back up. And those are the guys that really have a chance to succeed at the highest level. Could you see guys that didn't have that? I did. You know, you see, you know, high, high draft picks, number one picks, you know, they come into the room and they're six, three and they're, and, and, and they're physical and they can run and they've got a cannon for an arm and they got tons of bat speed and they say all the right things. Uh, Cause they've always been told how great they are. You know, your number one draft pick, you've been told your whole life how great you are. Do you really believe that? I saw a lot of guys that would fake the funk. That's what we used to call it. You know, when when the players are gathered around, they could talk a good game about how good they were. Uh, we see the tools. Anybody can see the tools, but the tools and, and be able to have a good at bat in the eighth inning off a, off a closer or the ninth inning off a closer. Those are two different animals. So, yeah, you could definitely recognize the the pretenders and you definitely could recognize the real baseball players. And it's a real cool thing to see how those two scenarios played out sometimes. All right. Something everybody always asks, and this is a question I asked early, early on in my career. Remember uh, Robbie Thompson, second baseman for the giants. I do. I, I uh, so I asked this to RT the first time I ever, first time I ever talked to RT, I asked him and he looked at me like I was crazy. Hey, RT, what do you do with your glove during the off season? And he said, I put it in a sandwich bag and I sit it on the shelf and I don't touch it until we get ready for the next uh, for the next season. So people will ask me this all the time, because if you walk by and you, and you get a little glimpse or they might show it on TV, you'll see you, you were a Mizuno guy, right? I was a Mizuno guy. So Mizuno is going to be out there. Rawlings is going to be out there. Wilson's going to be out there. The glove manufacturer is going to be there. There's usually a guy that could break in your glove for you. During spring training, there's a guy in, in, in Arizona that I love. He's got this little drum and he's got this mallet. He could break a glove in in about five minutes, um, just standing there beating the heck out of it. Tell us about equipment. When you know when you get your bats, how do you order your bats? When do you get your new glove? All the fun stuff that I don't know about as a fan. Well, pretty much when you get to the big leagues, you're kind of you're kind of set in your ways. You know the type of glove you use. You've been using it for years. You've settled in on a model uh, of bat that you're going to use. You might you might change. You might have two models that you like. I had a Rawlings. Uh, it was called a 460B that I used to use against left-handers, and I always went with the Louisville C271 against right-handers. Now, for anybody that checks the tape and see me having a, a right-handed at bat with a Rawlings, that means I was really struggling at the time and I'd do anything. But I had a couple models. Uh, I would order a couple dozen bats. And they'd be there the first of spring training. I'd get another order in spring training for opening day. And as far as the gloves, I was a pretty low-maintenance guy. I mean, basically, I'd come to camp. There'd be, I had the MVP 600, I believe, which was the Mizuno order, if, if if my memory serves me right. And I was set on that glove and they made make it exact to my specs. And it was the same every year. It was as consistent as could be. And there would be two or three gloves in my locker. When I got to spring training every year, I'd pick the two that I liked the most. And, and I'd start working out with those on the field for batting practice for spring training. I'd start breaking those in. 
I only used one glove a year throughout my whole career. So every year I had a brand new glove, good, bad, and different. If I want a gold glove, it didn't matter. That glove was going on the shelf and, and the glove that I was breaking in that year in practice during batting practice, during spring training, that was going to be my gamer for the next season. So that's, that was my program. Uh, different guys, different ways. Walt Weiss, uh, teammate of mine late in my career with Atlanta, he said he used a glove. He called it the thing. And it was the ugliest glove I've ever put on my hand. He, <laughs> he used it for 12 seasons. And I, I said, I said, Walt, I use one a year. He goes, no, I've been using this for 12 years. It was so ugly. And I, I was kind of known for having an ugly glove too. His glove, the thing broke. And Walt called me to get one of my gloves. Cause it was the closest thing <laughs> to his type of glove that was, that was already broken in. And I'd give him one of my old ones. So interesting how you are. Everybody's different. You know, some guys uh, will go three or four years. They really massage their glove. They're put shaving cream. They're really taking care of it. Mine was from opening day to that last year. Hopefully we were in the playoffs to that last game of the season. That was my glove for that year. And like I said, rain. And then what would snow, you do with it? I'd put it on the shelf. That goes in my in my toy box. And you still have any? Yeah, I've got them all. Oh, I've got them all. See, I learned something. whose glove was it? That, that someone lost during autographs? That was mine. No, I was I was signing autographs uh, one day in Seattle and I had a glove under my, you know, under my arm and I was holding it and kids were throwing balls down and, and their gloves down. And I just got to talking and, you know, one of those times where you're just kind of zoning out and just by a reaction. I, I signed my glove and threw it up into the crowd like it was somebody else's glove. <laughs> I went up, had had dinner. Didn't think twice about it. Getting ready for game time. And I couldn't find my glove. I'm going, wait a minute. That's my gamer. That's important. And, I, and I'm thinking, no one's ever stolen my glove out of my locker. Nobody's even allowed in the locker room at that time. What did I do with my glove? And I just was racking my brain. And I thought, did I throw it up in the crowd? So anyway, I had to go up there out there with my backup glove, which really wasn't broken in enough. And I was panicking a little bit. I got through the game. Okay. Unscathed, uh, put an APB out at the time, you know, the, we didn't have social media then like we have now. So basically I went to all the, the publications around town. I did my post game interview and I said, anybody has my glove out there, please return it. You know, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'd be happy to sign whatever you need, but that's my gamer. I really need it. And you know, you know how fans are. It was a story for them. Like we got to get Booney back his glove. So he doesn't make any mistakes on defense. So um, what happened was David bell. I got the glove back. I, I, the fan that had the glove, uh, I signed a bat in a jersey for. He was happy. I was happy. Did he know he had your gamer? No, he just figured it was a it, it was an autograph. He had no idea. So, but he graciously came back, gave it to me. Like I said, I gave him a pretty good trade out. You know, I think we got him some tickets, uh, a signed jersey, a signed bat for bringing back my glove. And it was weird. I got it back, and to this day, I still have this glove. With your and own it, autograph on it. No, no. It has my autograph and it has David Bell's autograph. And I said, How is David Bell on your Why glove? is David Bell? And, and I brought it over to him. I said, is this your signature? He said, yeah. I said, where did you sign this? He goes, I don't know. Some guy in the parking lot on my way out. He just had that <laughs> glove. And I, I said, David, you know what my glove looks like. And he goes, well, I really wasn't thinking about it. 
I said, how could you sign my gamer? You knew it was missing and it just dawned on you. We had a good laugh about it and uh, he moved on. So yeah, that was the story of, of the one time I lost my gamer. Did you play with it the rest of the year with the David Bell autograph? I did. And still to this day, I have it. I have it. What it, kind it, of year did you have? That was my old one glove. So I, I had a pretty good year. Now, I now I need to know. How terrified were you that somebody was going to hit the ball to you with your backup unbroken in non-gamer well, glove? Well, it's not that it was unbroken in. I mean, I think we were in May. So, I mean, I'd use this in batting practice now, you know, including spring training. It had two or three months, but I was used to needing six or seven months with a glove to get it to where I felt comfortable taking it in a real game. Uh, but no, it was fine. I mean, it was, it was plenty broken in. It just, just wasn't my gamer. It was out of the norm. Uh, even if you get to a point where it, it becomes something, uh, you just don't like to do that. And, and I went out there and I went on sky. I think I had two or three plays. I made all the plays and it really ended up not being a big deal. Cause I did have that backup. Um, but yeah, I was I was happy to get that gamer back because that gamer was a gamer for a reason. And that backup glove was still in the in the process of getting ready for the 2002 season. Is it a, is it an extension of your body? Glove? Yeah, uh, I think so. I, or is I mean, it a tool? Does it feel like it's part of your hand? Does it feel it like, feels like if, it feels like it feels like a part of my hand, part of my body? Um you get to that point. It wasn't always that way. You know, as a young player coming up through the minor leagues, uh, I had the reputation. I was always talked about as an offensive second baseman. And now I don't think that was necessarily a slight on my defense, but I took it that way as a young kid. I said, wait a minute, I'm, I'm more than an offensive second baseman. I'm a defensive second baseman too. And I really took a lot of pride in my defense. I, I really worked hard, especially those first two, three years uh, in in the minor leagues and the big leagues, I, I really went out and made it a point. I wanted to be the best defender I could be. It got to a point where defense became so easy for me. I really didn't need to work on it much. And maybe that's a testament to all the work I put in early. Hitting for me was always hard, always. Even my best years, hitting's just hitting. And it's a really hard thing to do. Whereas defense got to a point where uh, it was something I relied on. Rich, for, for those times, because you're not always going to hit. And for those times where I, where I wasn't getting any hits, man, I was going to go out and take away from some hits from my opponent. So it became kind of a solace for me, something to, to lean on where, hey, I'm not getting any hits. Instead of pouting and, and having no way to retaliate, to go an 0 for 4, I could retaliate by going out, turning a big double play, making a great play that helped us win a ball game. And, and it's something that, man, defense – couple of those lean years I was talking about at the open of the, of the podcast, that 1997 season, I remember thinking uh, uh, teammates of mine go, you know, cause they knew I was having a tough year. Hey, Booney, don't lose that glove. You know, and my defense really did save my butt and kept me in the lineup every day when I was really struggling offensively. So uh, I always uh, have a soft spot for defense, love playing it. Uh, you know, of course, hitting's always number one. That's where all the glory is. That's the sexy thing to do to hit that big home run. But man, defense was a big part of my career. You got any good spring training stories for us? I, I really don't have anything out of that. I, I remember, you know, I remember early as a kid going to spring training and, and just thinking, wow, this is great. And spring training, we got Scottsdale, you know, they got great bars and, and, 
fun restaurants. And I used to go out and, and come back at, you know, 12 or one in the morning and get up at six 30 and be at the ballpark and be fresh as a daisy. I just remember as I got to be older and, you know, now we're getting into 2000 and I'm 32 and 33 years old. <laughs> I'd see these young kids walking through the door at, at six 37 in the morning. And that look on their face, like they were in Scottsdale all last night. Yep. I remember just sitting there going, man, how did I do it? How was I able to do that? You know, just cause I was so excited that I could, I could splash some water on my face. That's youth. That's what it's all about. Um, Last thing, let's finish off with this as we're doing our spring training preview. And uh, and we're going to we're going to be down in spring training. You'll be down there. I'll be down there. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, hang out together. But the other thing is, and, and I let's let's because we're doing this, let's go behind the scenes. Spring training is great. Spring training is fun. Spring training is light. It's there's not a lot of pressure on you until we get to the last week of spring training, Brett. And all of a sudden now cuts are coming. And if anybody's ever seen the movie uh, Major League, you know, when, when Wesley Snipes and Charlie Sheen's looking for the red tag, they don't do it that way. Tell us what happens towards the end of spring training when you know that cuts are coming and there's guys that are going to be released, sent down to the minor leagues. Um, I know the clubbies would always tell me, hey, Herrera, don't be down here screwing around because somebody's going to get cut today. I don't want you down here uh, cracking jokes when somebody's getting sent away. Well, I'll tell you what, usually the veteran players, they all know who's making the team and who's not making the team. It's pretty obvious. You know, sometimes we come down to a couple spots. The older guys usually know. And and speaking of a spring training story, my my spring training 1993, Lou Pinnell is the new manager. Uh, and when we are not seeing eye to eye all spring, we're just, you know, we're, we're very combative. My early time with Lou, uh, a lot of, lot of drop, drop dead drag out fights Lou and myself two they, of the most headstrong men I know uh, ended, and up, I ended up being my favorite ended up being my all-time favorite you know second time around with Lou is a different story uh, I got uh, all the respect in the world for him uh, my favorite manager of all time but it wasn't always like that and my first spring I was the heir apparent to Har- Harold Reynolds the previous year as I mentioned I, I got called to the big leagues and, and I got my feet wet and it was obvious it was brett boone's job he was the second baseman for the mariners 1993 uh and there was a lot of fanfare that came with it i think i had a mediocre spring and i remember the last day of spring training and i wasn't in the lineup i played every day that spring in the last day of spring i wasn't in the lineup and it was really an uncomfortable moment for me because i didn't know what to do and you know you feel like everybody's kind of looking at you but you don't know well i wasn't in the know and i remember i at the time mike blowers uh who was a friend of mine but he was a veteran guy he had been around a little bit he was kind of in with the veteran players Uh, i kind of went up to him i said mike what's going on why aren't i playing and he kind of looked at me and gave me it straight he said booney i heard you're getting sent down that was the last yeah. thing on my list that year, you know, 92, I knew I was going to get sent out no matter how well I did 93. They had Harold Reynolds had moved on. That was my position. <laughs> and all of a sudden they tell me you're going to the minor leagues. Sure enough. After that game, I got a tap on the shoulder from one of the coaches. I think it was Sammy Perlazzo. He said, Hey, skip wants to see you. And that's, that's when you know, you're, you're in trouble. Skip wants to see it. That means you're usually getting sent down. But, you know, it's for the most part, 90 percent of spring training. It's already a foregone conclusion. 
you know, Aaron goes in the spring this year. He knows who his guys are. And there's right. probably two or three spots that guys are battling for. You the might last have it, guys in the bullpen. Right. And that comes down to those final days. And, and Derek, the way they've played during the spring usually will dictate who gets that last roster spot. But for the most part, it's kind of, it's kind of already, already known. But in that case, for me, it was an unexpected thing. You know, everybody, the press had been telling me I was the second baseman and all of a sudden I wasn't. And I remember it was kind of shocking for me. And, and that year I got called up, you know, I got called up about a week later and then sent down and then called back up. Eventually I stuck uh, for the remainder of my career, but those are all, times we go through and they're trials and tribulations. And, and if you, if you go about it right and, and you, and you take it as a learning opportunity, you're better for it. I tell, I tell my boy this, I tell everybody, I learned this from Mitch Lukovic, who was the farm director for the Rays and he worked for the Yankees for years. He told me when we send kids down, we tell them you have your choice to get better or you could just be bitter. If you're going to be bitter, you'll be out of this game. But if you go down there and work and get better, there's a chance you can come back up. So let me let me talk about the better thing. And before we wrap this up, the day they tell you that you're that you made the club, or you're going to the big leagues. Tell me about that. Well, I never had one of those days where I made it, where they told me I made it. I <clears throat> that year I was it was a shock to me that I didn't make the team, and I went down like I said for a week. By the end of that year, uh, I had kind of proven myself. I got traded to the Cincinnati Reds. And then I knew I was on the team. So I didn't have that that day where I got called in and say, hey, congratulations, kid, you made it. That's usually that's very rare, but that's usually uh, a situation where that player wasn't expected expected to make the team and he did make the team. Usually the only call you get is when you're getting sent out. So if you don't get that tap on the shoulder, you're looking good. So in a way, it was like me. It is like the movie Major League. No red tag. You're 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 safe for the day. Right. The, the red tag. That's a little Hollywood. That, that's so, that's a little hokey. That's a little hokey. But you, okay. But tell me, I, I've never asked you this as long as we've known each other as much as we talk. The day that you did get called back up. So you get sent down right. the first time. You're not going to make it. You're surprised you get sent down the second time, but you get called back up in a week. Tell me about that moment where the triple the A manager who tells you, hey, Brett, you're going back to the big leagues. Triple A manager. He'll, he'll come. Okay. To you. So, t- so describe that because none of us have ever been able to experience something like that. Well, the first time it was really a, a cool thing. You know, we got into a big argument with my AAA manager. He played it out like a Hollywood script. And, and he said he was taking me out of the game because I wasn't hustling. You know, I was yelling back and wait, forth. Wait, wait, wait. Back up for a second. I need the whole background on this. Uh, it's triple a, uh, there's a lot of, once again, a lot of fanfare. I'm going to be the first third generation player, you know, in the history of baseball, it's a matter of when, uh, so it's an August day and, and I get a base hit to right field, just a base hit around the bag. I come back, somebody comes out to run for me and uh, I forget who, who the player was, but he says, Booney, I'm running for you. I said, for what? He goes, skip told me I'm running for you. I said, get the hell out of here. So you're not running for me. Here comes Keith Bodie. I'll never forget. It comes out of the dugout and he's a, he's a New Yorker. He's got that, that accent, that attitude. And he's right in my face saying, when I tell you to get the F out of the game, you get the F out of the game. And I looked at him. I said, why? He goes, you didn't hustle around in the bag. I said, bullshit, Keith. I said, I always hustled. We're going, we're, we're, we're face to face. We're chin to chin. Finally, I slammed my helmet down. I, Walking the dugout, he comes over to me with a big smile, laughing. He goes, I'm just kidding. You're going to the big leagues. 
Now, shell shock. That's one way you get called up. Um, the next year when I was expected to be the second baseman, it didn't work out. Lou sent me down the last day, different Keith Bodie. Now he's kind of treating me like he knows that I'm, you know, this happened. It wasn't supposed to happen. So it was different. And, and now all of a sudden I was a veteran AAA player. So Keith treated me a little bit differently. So when the first call came that year, uh, he just called me right away into the office, not, didn't mess around with me and just say, hey, Booney, you're going back up there. He goes, I don't want to see you again. You know, and usually that's it. Well, I came back again and then I got sent <laughs> up again. Eventually I did stick, but it's different your first time versus versus when you've done it a few times. So always interesting, though. Wow, that is outstanding. Now I'm fired up for spring training, Brett. I'm excited, you know, even though, you know, I'm not a player anymore. The one thing I don't miss is chasing that breaking ball off the plate. I'll never miss that. But I definitely do miss uh, going across that desert to Arizona. Um, I, I, just that clubhouse atmosphere, hanging out with the guys. Uh, I do miss that. So you mentioned at the top, uh, I'm going to be headed over spring uh, a couple different times. So I, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I absolutely am looking forward to going, and I'm, and I'm going to be both in Florida and Arizona, so I cannot wait to get some ball games in as uh, we get ready for what should be a very exciting Major League Baseball season. So, Booty, thank you for letting me hijack the podcast and I'll ask you a bunch of questions I wanted to know about. You got it. You giving it back to me now? I'm going to give it back to you. You got it. And as we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast, first of all, we're going to thank Rich Herrera for facilitating this interview today. Thank Pretty you cool much. catching up on, on uh, spring training and, and sent me down memory lane. As we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast, we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan. Thank you very much. Now, that's that's here's the real Dan Levy. That's going to wrap it up for the Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. The digital content for the Boone Podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.